What truly matters is teachers' expertise. The most important tip for new teachers is to set out your boundaries. 44% of jobs will be automated. It reinforces cycles of disadvantage. Hello listeners and lovers of learning and welcome to episode 34 of Education Research Reading Room, the podcast that brings you into the discussion with inspiring educators and education researchers. I'm Ollie Lovell and it's a pleasure to be your host in the ERRR. I'll start today by acknowledging the Woiwurrung and Boonwurrung people of the Kulin Nation on whose lands this podcast was recorded and pay respects to Elders past, present and emerging, as well as to any Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islanders who may be listening today. In today's episode, we're speaking to Natalie Wexler. Natalie started her career in law and has always had a journalistic flair and a passion for writing. In recent years, she's turned her attention to the world of education and applied her journalistic talents to exploring, in particular, the American education system. In 2017, she co-authored The Writing Revolution, which I discussed in detail with Natalie's co-author, Judith Hotchman, in ERRR number 29, which is now, I'm happy to say, the third most popular ERRR episode. Natalie's writing on education has been featured in Forbes, the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the Atlantic. And today we're speaking about Natalie's recent book, The Knowledge Gap, The Hidden Cause of America's Education System and How to Fix It. In discussing Wexler's work, we also discuss what the role of knowledge is and what it perhaps should be within the curriculum. The role that Australian consultants have had in spreading reading strategies in New York schools. E.D. Hirsch and his beliefs about where achievement gaps come from. The challenge of developing a knowledge curriculum at scale, resources for teachers interested in helping their classrooms to become more knowledge rich, and much, much more. Before we start the main interview, a quick reminder about the regular emails that I send out on a Friday that summarise a fantastic array of educational blogs, books, papers, podcasts, and resources. And if you'd like to receive that free digest, just sign up at ollielovell.com. And a big thanks to those who have signed up to support the show through Patreon since last episode. It means a lot to me. There are listeners out there who value this show enough to help keep it running through a monthly donation. To become a patron, just jump onto patreon.com forward slash ERRR or follow the Patreon button from ollielovell.com. Now, without further ado, let's jump straight into episode 34 of the ERRR podcast with Natalie Wexler. Natalie Wexler, welcome to the Education Research Reading Room. Thanks. I'm delighted to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Absolute pleasure. So the first question we usually ask, Natalie, is if you meet someone and they say, hi, Natalie, what is it that you do? What's your answer? I would say I'm an education writer and I'm the author of a book that recently came out in the United States called The Knowledge Gap, The Hidden Cause of America's Broken Education System and How to Fix It. Cool, which is very fitting because that's what we're talking about today. This is kind of a new question and I'm hoping that it sets the scene for the rest of our interview quite well, but to your mind, what is the purpose of school-based education? Well, it's hard to say there's one purpose, but I, I think there are interconnected purposes. I think one purpose is to enable students to lead rich, fulfilling lives. And I think that that also intersects with the idea that they will make valuable contributions to the economy. But I think especially in a democracy, one key role of education is to enable citizens to exercise their rights and responsibilities in a way that makes sense. And that is really crucial to the continued functioning of democracy. 
Okay. Uh, well, I guess that ties a lot into to what we'll be talking about later on. You haven't always been working in the education space. Could you give us a little bit of a history of your career to date and, and how you came to be focusing on education? Well, I'll, I'll give you the brief version or we'll be here for quite some time. Sure. But I, <laughs> I actually, my first job was as a journalist, as a reporter, but then I ended up doing other things, including going to law school. I worked as a legal historian. I wrote three novels, but I also returned to journalism now and then. And I worked, I did freelance writing for various publications. And then about seven, eight years ago, I turned back to journalism because I got very interested in what was going on in Washington, D.C., where I live in the education reform community, which is very active here. There was a lot of turmoil, I don't know what you want to call it, and and, and some innovation going on. And What, so what, what I, were the years at that time? I guess I got, I mean, it's probably back in 2010 or so that I first got involved. And so that is nine years ago. And I, I started going to panel discussions and reading everything I could get my hands on and going on school tours and things like that. And I realized after a few years that there was a lot going on and there wasn't enough coverage. I mean, the Washington Post newspaper was doing some of it, but there was really more than it was covering adequately. So I started writing about education for a sort of communal news website called Greater Greater Washington. And I did that. I became very quickly became their education editor which was a kind of a misnomer because I was basically the only education writer. So I wasn't really doing much editing. I was really editing doing your own writing. work, which is very important. <laughs> uh, yes. Yes. It's, it's actually, it's a very good thing to be able to do. And I learned a lot through that, you know, uh, several years of really going out and talking to teachers and, and, you know, visiting classrooms again. But what, I eventually stumbled upon, I realized was bigger than a blog post or an article, and it was bigger than Washington, D.C. And I set out to solve a mystery, which was, why does everything fall apart at high school in this country? It seemed that elementary school was the bright spot in education reform. Middle school seemed to be making progress, but everything seemed to fall apart at high school. The test scores were stagnant and quite low. There was a large, what we call achievement gap, a gap in test scores between higher income and lower income demographics. And we just didn't seem to be making any progress. And that is also where most education reformers thought the problem was. Mm -hmm. Eventually, I, I was informed by Judy Hockman, who I know you've interviewed, had on this podcast before and who I had gotten to know, that what I thought was going on in elementary school was not, in fact, going on, and that really elementary school is at the root of a lot of the problems that become apparent in high school, because just briefly, we are not providing kids there with the kind of knowledge that they will need to succeed in high school and beyond. Okay. Cool. So as, as you mentioned, the book we're discussing today is The Knowledge Gap, The Hidden Cause of America's Broken Education System and How to Fix It. And in the first chapter, which is called the water they've been swimming in, you really kind of unpack what you've just been alluding to, which is kind of relationships between test scores, how tests are structured, and the way that that drives instruction within the classroom, in addition to some kind of historical precedents and things like that, that have influenced the way that educators view what is and what isn't effective education at present. So I, I thought that would maybe be a good place for us to start. If you, if you could, for us, just unpack that a little bit more 
maybe some of the relationships between testing and, and what teachers teach and anything else you think is relevant as a basis for the rest of our discussion today? Sure. Well, I don't know what the situation is in Australia, but for the past 20 years in this country, we've had a system of high stakes reading and math tests, not actually required by the federal government, but required for federal funding, which everybody wants. So these reading and math tests have really affected how teachers teach and the curriculum, especially in schools where test scores are low, because there's a lot of, it depends on the state and the district, but in some states and districts, teachers' jobs are at stake, depending on whether or not they can raise test scores. And pretty much everywhere, these test score ratings are made public and and schools are thought to be better or worse, depending on how high or low their test scores are. So there's a lot of pressure to pay attention to these test scores. And with reading tests, teachers and educators, policymakers look at these tests and they think, this is what we need to teach. And what the tests purport to be testing are general reading comprehension skills, things like, can you find the main idea of this passage? Can you make an inference about what this sentence means in context? That kind of thing. And so now this, this approach to reading comprehension existed before reteaching it as though it were a set of generally applicable skills, but it really became intensified once reading tests became so important. And one important thing to know about American reading tests is that the passages on the test do not have anything to do with what kids are learning in school. They are actually designed not to overlap with anything kids might be learning in school because test designers don't want to give one group of students an unfair advantage. So, you know, if one class has studied the Civil War and another hasn't, then the kids who've learned about the Civil War will, they, test designers know, have an advantage in understanding that passage. So they try to choose things that draw on kids' general knowledge. So if they have a question about hurricanes, which are more prevalent in the south of the United States, they might balance it with one about blizzards, which are more prevalent in the north. But no matter what they do, the kids who have less general knowledge and vocabulary are always going to be at a disadvantage. And those kids tend to be the ones coming from less educated families. Children from higher educated families absorb a lot of sophisticated knowledge and vocabulary about the larger world at home. So what this has led to, I think, unintentionally, I mean, the the testing has uncovered a lot of inequities in our education system and differences between demographic groups and socioeconomic groups. But it has also had the effect, uh, really the opposite effect from what we want. Instead of boosting kids reading comprehension, especially at the the lower end of the socioeconomic scale, it's really impeded it. Because as cognitive scientists have known for decades now, the most important factor in whether you can understand what you're reading is not some generally applicable skill like finding the main idea. It is how much background knowledge and vocabulary you have relating to the topic. So if we want to boost kids reading comprehension, what we really should be doing is immersing them in history, science, the arts, ways that we can expand their knowledge and their vocabulary and increase their chances of understanding whatever texts they come across. Instead, and especially in high poverty schools where test scores are low, we have narrowed the curriculum to those quote-unquote tested subjects, reading and math. I would push back on the idea that reading is a subject. But what's happened is that 
social studies, science, the arts, those things have largely disappeared, certainly from the elementary curriculum in high poverty schools, and to some extent, really, in middle school as well. So often what happens is kids from high poverty communities, when they get to high school without ever having been exposed systematically to history or science, and all of a sudden they're expected to understand a textbook about World War One or whatever, they don't have a sense of historical chronology. They don't know what Europe is. They don't know maybe what a, the difference between a city and a country or a city and a state or a country and a continent. I mean, these are things that teachers in high poverty high schools have told me. These are gaps in kids' knowledge that are not uncommon. Mm, okay. So what you just talked about there, I'd like to dwell on one of the main points because it really is the main point of your book. And that is the assertion that the test score gap or the achievement gap is essentially a knowledge gap. So can you tell us more about the evidence that there is? Because I'm, I'm sure some listeners will hear that and they fundamentally agree with you from the outset, but also some people will probably say, not convinced yet. So can you please just tell us a bit more about the evidence that, that kind of backs up that assertion? Sure. Well, there's quite a bit of evidence and this sort of landmark study is what is known as the baseball study back in the late 80s. Some researchers decided they wanted to determine what is more important in reading comprehension, general reading comprehension skills or background knowledge of the topic. And they took a bunch of junior high school students, so like seventh, eighth graders, let's say 12, 13-year-olds, I don't know, in Australia if you have the same grade system. And they chose the topic of baseball because they figured they're bound to be American kids who are not generally good readers, but do know quite a bit about baseballs, and so it's our national pastime. So they divided these kids into four groups, depending on how well they had done on a standardized reading comprehension test and how much they knew about baseball. And then they gave them all a passage to read about baseball and tested their comprehension. And what they found was that the kids who knew quite a bit about baseball all did quite well on this comprehension test, regardless of how well they had tested on the standardized reading comprehension test. And the kids who didn't know much about baseball all did fairly poorly. I mean, the, the quote-unquote good readers did somewhat better than the quote-unquote poor readers. But the poor readers who knew a lot about baseball did much, much better than the quote-unquote good readers who didn't. So that experiment, which really does suggest that background knowledge relating to the topic is more important than general comprehension skills, that has been replicated in a number of contexts. And I think the most interesting one, if we're looking at gaps between socioeconomic groups, is one that I call the WUG study, which was done maybe 20 years later with a, a group of preschoolers from different socioeconomic backgrounds. And the first, the researchers read a storybook aloud to these kids about birds. And that was a topic they had already determined the higher income kids knew something about. And the, the kids from the lower income families did not. And sure enough, when they tested the kids' comprehension, the, the higher income kids did better on that comprehension test. But then the researchers read the kids another storybook. This time it was about made-up animals called wugs. And obviously none of the kids knew anything about wugs because they don't exist. So when background knowledge was equalized in that way, there were no significant differences in comprehension between the different socioeconomic groups. So it's really not a matter of difference in skills or difference in income or socioeconomic status. It's a difference in knowledge. And I think, so I can also talk a little bit about why scientists think that's true, but I think it is a matter of common sense. I mean, if, if I tried to read a 
paragraph from a newspaper about the game of cricket, which I know nothing about, it's going to be difficult for me to find the main idea. If I try to read an abstract of a, a molecular biology article, a scholarly article, and I, I don't know much about molecular biology, I will again have trouble. I think what is less apparent is how much some kids don't know, how much vocabulary, how many concepts are unfamiliar to them. But what cognitive scientists say about why this is true, there are different ways of explaining it. One is that if you have knowledge of a topic, you're able to chunk information. So for example, in the baseball passage, uh, students who knew about baseball could recognize a series of actions described in the text as a triple play, which is a don't ask me what that is because I don't know much about baseball, but they wouldn't have to remember each action in that series. Mm. They could think, oh, yeah, there was a triple play. Another way of putting it is that you already have an existing framework or schema in which you can fit new information if you already know something about the topic. But, you know, it is not just comprehension that is aided by knowledge. It's also uh, absorption of information and retention and ability to analyze it. And there's a metaphor that I like that, that helps with that. Knowledge is like Velcro. It sticks best to related knowledge. And what that's about is it's about working memory, which is that aspect of thinking. You're juggling basically what's in front of you, taking in things around you. And the thing to remember about working memory is that it has limited capacity. You can only hold a certain number of things for a limited period of time. So the more that you're able to withdraw from your long term memory, which as a virtually limitless capacity, the more space you have in working memory for things like comprehension and analysis. And so if you've got a lot of stuff about baseball in your long-term memory that you can just withdraw, you don't have to juggle that in your working memory, then you're better able to take in new information about baseball. Makes sense. Also, if any listeners want to know a little bit more about that distinction between working memory, long-term memory, and have that unpacked a bit, I recommend you go back to episode nine of the EPPLR with Andrew Martin, when we talk about load reduction instruction and also motivation and engagement. Now, Natalie, you made a fantastic point there, which I think is really salient. And it also links back to something you were talking about earlier, which was the content of the tests that these kind of state high stakes test is. And before you suggested the content of those tests is deliberately not related to the curriculum and that that exacerbates this achievement gap. So with that being the case, would you suggest that, for example, and I know that's the case in Australia with NAPLAN as well, would you suggest that those tests would be better to be aligned with the curriculum? Would that help to, to reduce the achievement gap there? I do think so. I mean, the problem is we don't have a national curriculum in this country. And in most states, there is no sort of standard curriculum. And these tests are designed to be given in multiple jurisdictions. But there is a very exciting development in the state of Louisiana, which is which has been a leader in this whole move away from these reading comprehension skills and, and towards a focus on content. And that state has created its own content-focused curriculum, which is not required, but because they've done a good job of educating the educators about why that's important, it's in use in something like 80% of classrooms in Louisiana. And that enables them to come up with a test that is tied to the curriculum. So they mm. have gotten approval from the federal government to experiment. And it's really kind of sad that this is such an innovation experiment with a test that instead of testing kids basically on knowledge they've just happened to pick up 
actually does test them on stuff they've been taught in school. In this case, it's both their English language arts curriculum topics and social studies topics. So some of the questions, there will actually be passages from texts that are part of the curriculum, and there'll be comprehension questions on those. This is, again, at the middle school level. And, and then there will also be things that are not exactly what they've already read, but have some relationship in terms of the topic to things they've read. So I think that really could level the playing field considerably. And I'm going to be you know, watching that closely, and I hope that other states and school districts here will as well. When can we expect results out in terms of that? The first round of tests was last spring. So those results should be coming out soon if they haven't already. But, you know, it sometimes takes a couple of years for people to get the hang of a new test. So I wouldn't judge anything on the basis of the first year of implementation. Very prudent, very prudent. Now, you did before talk about a bit of a difference between what's happening in primary and secondary. And I wanted to hone in on that a little bit because in terms of enough or not enough content or knowledge, previous guests such as Jay McTie have actually argued the opposite in that one of the main issues in education is especially in the high school curriculum, it's just too content heavy, there's too much and we don't get to enough depth and we don't get to those enduring ideas that he advocates for. So is this like, is this the case that we've totally packed the secondary curriculum and there's basically nothing in the primary instead of knowledge or is, is it an issue right across the board? No, I think, you know, you could say there's too much content at the high school level. I, I, I wouldn't say that exactly. I do think that there may be too much coverage and what you end up is getting a superficial treatment of a whole bunch of topics. You get textbooks in this country, at least, that try to cover all of world history, you know, in, in one year. And, and that's, uh, it's hard to do that in depth. But I, the main problem that I'm focusing on is if kids are arriving in high school without the kind of background knowledge that enables them to understand the texts. And, and if they need really basic information, then it's very hard to get to that higher level of um, discussion you know, and analysis. I, I've talked to, for example, a history teacher who you know, was, was trying to teach a course in the United States history from the Civil War on, but the kids didn't know about the American Revolution, so she had to start with, okay, we had a revolution, and this is who we want our independence from. That makes it very difficult to really teach at a high school level. 100%. Now, in the book, you also mention how other countries potentially provide a bit of a precedent for the value of a knowledge-rich curriculum, and you speak in particular about France, and you suggest that in France, there is knowledge-rich curriculum, and that has benefited to reduce inequality. So what kind of metrics are you drawing from there, or, or what, what evidence is there to support that? Well, that example really comes from a book by E.D. Hirsch called Why Knowledge Matters, and, and he did this research. I mean, France is very good at collecting data about its education system, so he was able to mine that data. And essentially what happened in France was they they did have a uh, really preschool beginning at age two through what we could call high school, very content-focused curriculum, very heavily prescribed nationally. And they, you know, seem to be getting good results. But in, I believe it was 1989, they passed a new law saying just to the elementary schools or that that level, the primary school level, you don't need to follow this curriculum anymore. You can focus on skills primarily and choose whichever skills you want. So it was much more of the American model. And what happened was 
the overall level of achievement in France declined. Everything else remained the same, by the way. The overall level of achievement on international tests declined, and so did the gap between the highest income and lowest income students. So there was a big equity gap that opened up. And I think, although it was not an intentional experiment, it really is a pretty convincing mass, you know, (laughs) inadvertent experiment on the effect of a content-focused elementary curriculum. Makes a lot of sense. And I would add that other countries that outscore the United States on international tests, they generally have national content-focused curricula that their schools all follow. And it makes a big difference in several ways. I mean, it actually, it, it, if the kids switch schools, they are not going to be getting the same thing over again or a different experience that also helps ensure that, that teachers are teaching some kind of content, especially at the elementary level. And it also enables teacher training programs, schools of education, to equip teachers with the content knowledge that they will need to teach and the best way to deliver it pedagogically, which we can't do on a mass scale in this country because we don't know what a teacher at any grade level is going to be expected to teach. Now, given that there is kind of these high stakes tests are focused on content that isn't necessarily in the curriculum. And given that teachers are being held to account for the results that they get, teachers are naturally going to try to develop ways to help their students in the kind of content scarce environment to still achieve. And in the book, you spend quite a lot of time talking about the way that the teachers try to solve this problem is by teaching reading comprehension skills. So could you give us a little bit of description about what you mean when you talk about reading comprehension skills for listeners today? Sure. So would you like a picture of what it looks like in a typical elementary classroom that is focused on reading comprehension skills or just a, a rundown of different skills? I, I know you spent quite a bit of time in uh, in some classrooms, so maybe that'd be a nice way to bring it alive for listeners. Yes, sure. Well, typically in an American elementary school classroom, there's a skill of the week, a comprehension skill of the week. And I do want to make it clear that when I talk about reading skills, I'm not talking about the foundational skills that go into decoding, into matching sounds to letters and things like that. Those really are skills. I'm just really talking about comprehension skills. We also have a big problem with those foundational skills and the way we teach them, but I won't focus on that. So there's a skill of the week, and it could be um, comparing and contrasting. It could be determining the author's purpose. It could be uh, summarizing or visualizing. There's a whole range of them. And at the beginning of the week, the teacher might do a pretest to see how well students can use demonstrate that skill. But basically, he or she will model that skill, will we'll show students how you read something and, and use that skill. So, And the text will be something chosen not for its topic, not for its content, but for how well it lends itself to demonstrating the skill. And sometimes there won't even be a text. I mean, a popular way of demonstrating the skill or modeling the skill of comparing and contrasting is to have two students come up to the front of the room wearing different outfits and have students compare those outfits. And then students, essentially, there will be different centers that students will go to, and they may be doing different things. But essentially, they go and practice those reading, whatever the skill of the week is, supposedly, on books that have been determined to be at their individual reading levels. And that that is the other part of this approach that's very tightly knit to reading skills and strategies. So students are tested. They're given a passage to read, and the teacher 
basically just counts up the mistakes they've made, and that determines their reading level. And it may be years below their actual grade level. So you could be in fifth or sixth grade, but it's been determined that you're actually reading at a second grade level. So you will be directed to a basket of books at that level. And those are the books you use to practice your skills. And the theory is that if you just diligently practice your skills at books that you can read on your own pretty easily, that you will eventually be able to move up the ladder of text complexity and catch up to where you need to be. And what's your view on that? Well, it hasn't worked. <laughs> I mean, we haven't made progress in this country reading scores in a long time. I mean, 20 years at, at least. And you can see why it won't work. If, as we know from cognitive science, what is going to equip you to move up that ladder of text complexity is acquiring more knowledge and vocabulary, more sophisticated vocabulary. And you're only reading books that you can read pretty easily yourself, and they're on a random variety of topics, you have no opportunity to acquire the kind of knowledge and vocabulary that would enable you to move up that ladder of text complexity. Mm. Okay. At the same time as preparing for this interview, I was asked to prepare a professional development session for some teachers on supporting students to ask better quality questions. So I wanted to just draw some connection between that and this and then and then talk briefly about a blog post, which I also sent you recently. As I was diving into this research, I kind of went, went back and back and I ended up reading some stuff from the 1970s and 80s, which was centered around this idea of cognitive strategy instruction. And a lot of this research was summarized by a gentleman by the name of Barack Rosenshine. Have you heard of Rosenshine? Yeah, so- yes, I have. Yeah, Rosenshine's very much a darling of what I would call traditional teachers or teachers in favor of explicit instruction, things like that. And he advocates for things like breaking instruction down into small steps and giving students practice after each step and things like that. Now, interestingly, many teachers who really support or believe in Rosenshine's work would probably be against or definitely minimize the role of this kind of skills instruction, which is also related to this cognitive strategy instruction. So I was very interested to read some of Rosenstein's reviews of the research in the 1990s that really talked up the value of these cognitive strategy instructions. And I was a little bit confused about what I seem to be a contradiction here. At this same time, and thanks for indulging me in sharing this, this bit of a story here. At around this same time, sure. I, was, I was tweeting with people about it. And, and a gentleman, a teacher from, I believe from the States, John Gustafson, hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, sent me a blog post called uh, from his series called Tracing the Origins, which goes back and traces the origins of ideas in education and essentially how things have gone wrong along the way. And John, yeah. prov- John drew out from these texts, and he also in this blog post, he referred to your, your excellent book as well, but he drew out from these texts some interesting things that I just wanted to sh- share that I thought provided some interesting distinctions, both for yourself, for me, and hopefully for listeners. So, the first distinction he made was why Rosenshine thought that cognitive strategy instructions, which have kind of morphed into what we see today as skills instructions, why they have a place. And so here's a quote from 1997 in a Rosenshine paper. The concepts from the teacher effects research, essentially the explicit instruction stuff I was alluding to earlier, were very useful when we could break a task into a series of explicit steps, guide student practice on those steps, and provide support, feedback, and practice to enable students to respond at a high level of success. But the concepts from the teacher effects research seemed less useful for teaching tasks that could not be broken into explicit steps, 
tasks such as reading comprehension. So he's saying basically when a teacher can break stuff down for students, they should and they should do it explicitly and they should give students lots of scaffolding. But when they can't, for example, when a student's faced with a large slab of text, what a teacher should be focusing on is giving the students the skills, these comprehension strategies, to break it down for themselves. I thought this was quite, quite an interesting idea. He adds to this, which is very much in line with your work, procedural prompts are most useful, so procedural th prompts are the kind of things that support students to make those cognitive leaps, are most useful when students have sufficient background knowledge and can understand the concepts in the material. Procedural prompts and the use of scaffolds cannot overcome the limitations imposed by a student's insufficient background knowledge. So what John's basically saying in this blog post is that there's a lot of value in, in these cognitive strategies, but as Rosenshine himself acknowledged, they're only helpful insofar as a student has the background knowledge, which is something I can see you nodding along to. Now we come to the quote from John's blog that I really wanted to give you a chance to respond to. So John, John says that Wexler's assessment that the teaching of reading comprehension has become narrowly constricted to practicing a growing set of disconnected skills similar to multiple choice exams, for example, finding the main idea, making inference, etc., is absolutely spot on. What is missing, however, is a careful consideration of what strategies are actually effective for aiding comprehension of knowledge-rich texts, given existence of sufficient prior knowledge, or put simply, how can we best help students meaningfully interact with text to deepen comprehension? So I guess the question is, do you feel that John's assertion may have some truth in that the book has gone a little bit too far towards the knowledge side and not given due credit for skills strategy or skills instruction if that background knowledge is in place? Well, there's a lot, but, <laughs> you know, there's a lot of things that I could respond to there. I, I don't think that I have overlooked that. I mean, where to begin here? You know, skills sound very good. And, and first of all, I, I would talk about there is this difference between skills and strategies, at least in the minds of reading experts. So in most teachers' minds, they're interchangeable. But comprehension skills have been around since like the 1950s, and they were these comprehension questions and that's that, that were in reading textbooks, basal readers, you know, can you find the main idea of this passage, et cetera. And then in the 70s, as, as you were explaining, psychologists were investigating what do expert readers do when they read? And maybe if we can figure that out, we can teach inexpert readers to do the same things. And it turned out that expert readers were apparently unconsciously asking themselves a lot of questions as they went along in their reading about what the meaning was and, and how they could connect what they were reading to things they knew before and all of those things. And so then in 2000, there were scholarly articles about this and teachers, at least in this country, started teachers who had rebelled against those comprehension skill questions in those textbooks embraced these strategies because they seemed to be something different, these metacognitive strategies. And they started teaching, you know, second graders about schema. But they were, again, they were overlooking the fact that these metacognitive strategies will not work if you can't understand the passage well enough to answer the questions you're asking yourself. Now, there, there may be some students who have enough background knowledge, can decode well enough that they can read it, but they don't understand they're actually supposed to be making meaning from what they're reading. And for them, these strategies could, in fact, be quite useful. But their usefulness appears to be limited. 
Dan Willingham, who is a cognitive psychologist you may know of, looked at these reading comprehension strategies that have scientific evidence behind them. And first of all, he found that they basically last six weeks. And that is not the way we, we teach these skills and strategies, you know, week after week, month after month, year after year. But he even looked beyond that and, and saw that within these six-week studies, that the gains really decreased significantly after two weeks of instruction. So he posits that really all you need is two weeks of this strategy-focused instruction, or really not strategy-focused, because the other thing about these studies is they don't put the strategies in the foreground. It's not like, okay, this week we're going to learn how to ask ourselves questions as we go along when we read. They put the, these studies put complex text in the foreground and brought in whatever strategies seem to make sense to help students understand it. So one thing I guess I'm saying is the way we teach skills and strategies does not correspond to anything that has evidence behind it. Now, there may be a role for some of these strategies, like, yes, I mean, summarizing, for example, can be a very powerful way of ensuring that information gets lodged in your long-term memory. But I would say it's more useful to look at those things not as strategies, because I think that leads to this idea that you can just teach the strategy. I think really we should look at those things as good teaching. You don't just dump information on kids and move on to the next, you know, dump of information. You give kids information, but then you ask them good questions about it that guide them to make connections between of information to figure out what's more important, you know, to, to connect it to something that they've learned in the past that's relevant. And I, I saw that happening in one of the classrooms I followed all the time, the classroom that was using a content-focused curriculum. But nobody mentioned, now we're working on a strategy of making inferences. Those kids were making inferences right and left under a teacher's guidance. Another thing I say in the book is that if the best insurance against what progressive educators fear most, which is just that kids will be passive receptacles for a bunch of disconnected facts, is to have children, have students write about what they are learning in a way that modulates the cognitive load so that they are actual, I mean, writing about something really forces you to make those connections to decide what's more important and how things should be organized so that you're telling a coherent story about what you have learned. So I spend, I think, a lot of the book talking about those kinds of things. You know, I also visited a school in London called the Michaela School, where, you know, they're very much in the mode of the teacher is going to stand in front of the class and explain things. But as the founder of the Michaela School told me, I mean, it's, it's not you know, that's not all we do. That would be very boring. We, you know, also have class discussions and we have kids write about things. And it's not that you explicitly need to teach kids how to make inferences or whatever. It's that you explicitly need to give them the information which they can then use to make inferences or whatever. Mm, definitely not along with you there, Natalie. You made an interesting distinction there between uh, skills instruction and strategies instruction. And before you gave us a bit of a snapshot of what it might look like in, in a classroom to do skills instructions on, for example, comparing and contrasting, getting two kids up with different t-shirts and that kind of a thing. And I know that you, you talked about the value of strategy instruction there in terms of summarization, for example, and your friend Judith Hotchman, she also, you know, we talked in detail when she came on the podcast about summarizing. So could you just briefly talk about what's different in the classroom in terms of teaching the strategy of summarization 
versus teaching the skill of comparing or the supposed skill of comparing and contrasting? Well, I think it's largely a matter of what you put in the foreground. In a skills-focused classroom, it's the skills that are in the foreground. So we're just going to work on comparing and contrasting or summarizing, and it doesn't really matter what you're comparing and contrasting or what you're summarizing. Whereas in a a classroom that is content-focused and focused on building knowledge, you might put you know, whatever content you're learning in the foreground of the human digestive system or the War of 1812 was one of the topics that the second graders I followed were learning. And, you you know, a skillful teacher who has a working with a good curriculum and, and, and the good curriculum could include suggested questions to ask will, you know, pause and say to students, well, let's compare the War of 1812 to the American Revolution, or, you know, what do you see that's different here? Or what's similar about, I I remember being in the classroom when the kids were studying the Civil War, and there was a read aloud. So these were second graders, they weren't reading this information themselves, but they were listening to a teacher, and that's very important, reading aloud from a text they couldn't access themselves about the Civil War. And it mentioned that the North was very intent on capturing the capital of the Confederacy, which was Richmond. And the teacher said, what does that remind you of? And some students raised their hands and said, well, it's like in the War of 1812, the British wanted to capture the American capital of Washington, D.C. So, you know, there are ways to use these, if you want to call them strategies or skills or whatever, but it is subordinated to the content rather than we are going to teach you directly a skill that you can then apply to whatever is put in front of you. Okay. Hodgman's approach is quite explicit, though. For example, with the summarization, if I recall correctly, you break down kind of the when, who, what, why kind of a thing, and then you put them all together in, a, in an order that makes sense. Right. So that kind of is, I would say, kind of content agnostic in some ways. So I'm still trying to get my head around why that makes sense, or I'd love to give you more opportunity to expound more upon why that makes sense, whereas why a skills approach doesn't make sense. Because it is, it's, this is quite a key distinction for us to make, and we want listeners to go away today with a clear distinction in their mind between, sure. between what, is, what you suggest is effective and what isn't. So let's tell us a little bit more about that, please. Well, I think, you know, one thing to bear in mind is that writing is a much more cognitively demanding task than speaking or even reading. And so it is important to have an outline when you're writing something like a paragraph, or even if you're an inexperienced writer, a sentence to keep you on track and to modulate that cognitive load. So yes, the strategies of the activities in the Writing Revolution book, which I co-authored, they're content neutral in the sense that they might, those questions, the why, where, they might be the same uh, no matter what you're writing about. But they are designed, all of those activities are designed to be embedded in whatever content the teacher is teaching. So the teacher needs to do the work of, of figuring out, you know, what, how am I going to adapt this activity to my particular subject, grade level, and the specific content I'm asking students to write about. So it's a marriage of skills and content, but you know that we have in this country really with both reading and writing separated the skills from the content as though the skills can be taught directly. And you know, so with with writing it's a little harder 
because it's quite obvious that you can't write about things you don't know about. Mm -hmm. And so what we've basically done at the elementary level in trying to teach these skills of writing is to have students just write about their own experience because they clearly know about that and they aren't really learning much about anything else in these skills-focused classrooms where they're just working on these comprehension skills rather than acquiring much content knowledge. There's a tremendous wasted opportunity to have kids. I mean, there is a role for kids to write about their own experience, but to have them exclusively writing about their own experience deprives them of the benefits of writing about what they're learning about, which is a tremendous way to actually build knowledge. Once you have some knowledge about a topic, and then if the cognitive load is modulated, you write about it, you are deepening your knowledge and you are increasing the chances you will retain that knowledge and you are analyzing it. But you do need a certain template or framework in which to do that when it comes to writing. I think it's less so when it comes to just discussing things, you know, but but writing is more difficult. Okay, that makes sense. And I guess another thing we could add there is probably the cognitive burden of talking about something is also dependent on the background skills or knowledge of of a speaker. So my experience at the school I'm at, English language learners do need the kind of sentence scaffolds to actually be able to express mm-hmm. an idea. So I guess that's a distinction which yes. you alluded to then as well. Yes. And what the writing revolution has found is that when you teach writing in this way, writing and content at the same time, that kids' speaking abilities, even native-born English speakers, that their speaking abilities are elevated as well. They start using more sophisticated vocabulary and sentence structure in their oral language. It also helps with reading comprehension too. So, <laughs> Totally, totally. With the um, summarizing approach, how long have you seen it generally take a student? So if you do teach that kind of who, what, why, where, when, put it all together approach in your experience, how many exposures would a student need to that before they've really kind of locked that down or, and over what period of time? You know, I I don't think I could answer that because I don't work directly with students through the, the writing revolution. We're just looking at some data that from some of the schools that I'm on the I'm the chair of the board of the organization. So when I say we, that's what I mean, but I'm not on staff. But we got some data from some of the schools that we work with directly that was really quite amazing. That students seem to pick this up a lot more quickly. I don't know specifically about summarizing, but you know, we have a rubric that we evaluate writing samples against. And it's particularly at the high school level that their scores on this rubric increased enormously after two years of exposure. I don't want to repeat the data because I may forget the figures, but at the high school level, it was something like 90% after two years were scoring proficient on our rubric, which was a tremendous increase from where they had been two years before. So I think it may be faster than I would expect that kids do get the hang of this and you actually see in their independent writing the effects of doing these activities and working on these skills. Yeah, that's fantastic. I was interested explicitly to ask about that time thing because you alluded before to probably one of the things I'm not as convinced about as yet in terms of what's been said in this interview so far and what I read in the book was Willingham's suggestion that it, you know, benefits really drop off after two weeks in my experience from, from spending time in the classroom, anything I want to do with students, if I really want it to stick, 
whether it be a strategy or even knowledge or anything, I've found that generally two weeks is kind of like a lower, lower, you know, for really bright yeah. students with really attached background knowledge, maybe two weeks, but for anyone else, probably longer periods of time. So I'm still a bit worried about that two week kind of claim. Well, I think if you're talking about building knowledge, I think two weeks is the minimum you need to spend on a topic for kids to build knowledge. I think he was talking about, and these are studies, they're kind of artificial. They're like, okay, you know, we're going to spend half an hour or whatever the time is doing this strategy instruction. But I, I do think, and this is something, you know, that I'm not, haven't really done research on, but just thinking about it, you know, there are efforts to teach critical thinking as well as reading comprehension skills and strategies. And I think, you know, you can try to develop in students the habit of thinking critically and analytically about things. And I think it's probably more useful or, you know, and this has to do with reading comprehension too. I mean, reading comprehension essentially is thinking critically and analytically about what you're reading. So, you know, I think it makes sense to try to reinforce that habit but I think it's better to think of it as a habit than as a skill or that you could just apply what, in whatever context you happen to be in. I mean, if you have the habit of thinking critically or thinking analytically, but you don't know enough to do it in a particular situation, it won't. your habit won't help you. Totally. But it could well help you. Willingham has written about this, too, that often people don't activate the knowledge they have that could actually help them figure out a problem or a certain situation. So if, if you can get people to be more in the habit of, of activating that background knowledge, I think that makes sense to try to do that. Yeah, great. And, and a previous guest, Catherine Scott, said a very similar thing. She referred to it as you can develop habits of mind, for example. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one example, we could recognize that consider something, I'm just to give an example, considering something like incentives, which is an idea primarily from economics, can help us to think critically about a lot of topics, for example, we spoke earlier about incentives when we were speaking about the way tests are structured drives skill-based instruction. But you also need the background knowledge in the domain. You may know how the incentives influence this situation. is a good question to ask in lots of situations, but as you've alluded to, you need the background knowledge to actually be able to answer that question. So we're right. bringing lots of things together here. Thanks for your patience uh, in, sure, in sure. My, my many questions, <laughs> trying, to, trying to get to the bottom of that. I really appreciate it. And hopefully our listeners have taken away a bit of a clearer distinction there or yeah. at least been stimulated to explore it further. I would add one more thing, which is, of course, ultimately, we do want kids, students to be able to look at a text that they, about something they don't have a lot of background knowledge about and be able to, to gain knowledge from their own reading of the text. And I do think that at some point, kids will have acquired a critical mass of general knowledge and vocabulary so that they'll be able to to do that. But it's hard to predict exactly what point any given student, you know, is going to reach that critical mass. But it it is, you know, the goal ultimately. It's it, sometimes people have asked me, well, you know, are you just going to limit kids to reading about things they have background knowledge about? And no, that that's not the case and I would hope that if they spend 8 or 9 years in a knowledge building curriculum then they will be able, when they get to high school, they'll be able to acquire knowledge through their own reading about relatively unfamiliar topics. Yeah, totally. And what you just said there alludes to a word or a phrase that Robert Pondicio alluded to in a recent blog post. He talked about you need a knowledge threshold and beyond that, students can access a wider variety. And I guess that's really at the heart of what Hirsch was trying to establish, which we'll explore yeah. in, more, in more detail later on. As an interesting aside, a uh, 
a teacher friend, Tom Drummond, tweeted in the kind of thread where I invited people to ask questions for this podcast. He tweeted an article from the Hetchinger Report in the US, which is a US, I'm sure you're aware, but for the benefit of listeners, it's a US education kind of news organization. And this article was really interesting. It was about the impact of Australians on essentially skills instruction in New York. And there were a few things that surprised me here. First of all, it's a massive industry. So, for example, from the 2010 to 2011 school year, this was like an over $100 million industry, this school consulting and many cases focused around skills. And the second thing that surprised me was that the biggest organization within that kind of market was called Aussie, A-U-S-S-I-E, yeah. um, started by <laughs> Diane Snowball, and they're pulling in half of the revenue. So, they were making something like 30, yeah, 60 million across the, across the year, I think it was, in that consulting. So, could you tell us, and I know this is, you mentioned in the tweet thread that this was something you had to pull from the book just because you didn't have enough space. So, especially for the benefit of Australian listeners, I think about 45% of the listenership. Can you tell us a bit about this story? Sure. Well, apparently, uh, Diane Snowball, whose name I really love, um, was in New York doing a six-month literacy program somewhere in New York. And this was at around the same time that there was a district within the New York City School District, there was a sort of sub-district that was experimenting with what came to be called balanced literacy. And Australia, apparently at the time, had was doing very well on international tests and had a high literacy rate. So the superintendent of that district in New York City wanted to bring whatever was going on in Australia into his, his district and somehow hooked up with Diane Snowball and convinced her to stick around in New York and work with this district, which was called District 2. And there were other American balanced literacy experts working with this same district. Diane Snowball's contribution was primarily bringing in these reading comprehension strategies into the mix. And by her own account, this she stumbled across these reading comprehension strategies when she started as a teacher, an elementary teacher, and realized that she had not been trained to teach reading. And she thought, oh my goodness, I don't know about teaching reading. I'll have to resign. But then she decided to go out and, and learn about it. And she came across these psychological research into the, what, that I mentioned before. And what do expert readers do? And they use these various strategies. And so she developed a sort of program based on those strategies. And D- District 2 ended up getting a lot of national publicity because reading scores there really went up, it seemed, as a result of this approach, this quote-unquote balanced literacy approach. Although some research by Diane Rabbit, who is an education historian and education activist here, she looked at the demographics of that school district, District 2, and looked at the census data that had not been available at the time people were writing about this tremendous improvement in test scores. And the researchers who were writing about it thought the demographics of the district had not changed. But if you looked at the census data, you realized that, yes, actually, the demographics had changed and there really was an influx of higher income families in this district, which really could have explained the increase in test scores. So I would say, you know, Diane Stovall, obviously in New York City, had had an impact. But I did come across, and what I ended up writing about more in the book, was a, a sort of parallel, very similar situation in Denver, Colorado, where teachers were also feeling they were using this balanced literacy approach. Well, in those days, it, it was really very opposed to teaching reading comprehension skills. And 
the approach was to just surround students with books, children with books, and, and they would just sort of figure out how to read. But the teachers in Denver began to feel they'd kind of talked themselves out of a job. You know, what, what are we supposed to do? And also they realized that some of these kids were not actually understanding what they were trying to read. So they too came across the same psychological research and developed a sort of system of teaching these reading comprehension strategies, which in their mind were very distinct from those old-fashioned reading comprehension skills. So I think there were multiple people coming up with very similar ideas at around the same time. That's fascinating. And is Aussie still a big force to be reckoned with in, in New York education? I actually, it's, I, I don't know any more than you do, really. I mean, I think I read the same articles you did. I haven't heard anything about it recently. So, and I, I don't know where Diane Snowball is these days. She may be back in Australia. But what has happened is an, another education guru who was active in District 2 has come to be really dominant in the United States. And her name is Lucy Calkins. Mm. And uh, she she seems to have taken on the mantle of Aussie and Diane Snowball. And she's a both a reading and a writing. She has a number of books out about both reading and writing. But when it comes to reading, she does incorporate these reading comprehension strategies into her approach. And in your book, you talk about how the 2003 announcement by Joel Klein that New York City was going to take on Kalkin's skills-based approach as the curriculum right across right across the board. Could you just briefly tell us a bit about that? Because we'll refer back to it a bit later. Yeah. Well, yes, that's an interesting story. So Joel Klein was not an educator. He was made that he was put in charge of the New York City school system, which is huge, by the mayor at the time, Bloomberg, and and the mayor had complete control for the first time of the school system. And Klein didn't, as I said, he didn't know much about education. He basically was getting advice from educators in the district. And they were saying this balanced literacy thing that they used in District 2, and they got such great results, it's really the way to go. And the person who really knows about this is Lucy Hawkins, who is based in New York at Columbia University, at Columbia Teachers College. And so much to Lucy Hawkins' surprise, because she was assuming that Joel Klein would take a very different approach, certainly to decoding skills, because her program, she was not a believer at the time in phonics. And some would say she's still not really. And and that was where the focus really was, was like, how are you going to teach the decoding side of things? And she assumed that Joel Klein was going to choose a program that really drilled kids on phonics. And so it would, would not be her program. She was at a, a press conference. She'd been invited to where he was going to announce the curriculum he'd chosen for all of New York City elementary and middle schools. And much to her surprise, he announced it was going to be her curriculum. Unfortunately, she didn't have a curriculum at the time, but she went home and quickly came up with one. And that really led to her prominence because the curriculum that she created ended up being published and is in use very widely now across the United States, whereas before she was pretty much a local New York phenomenon, she has now become very much a national figure in literacy education. Wow. It's interesting how history swings back and forth. And and really, your book is, in many ways, it's a history book. And that's part of why I found it so engaging, because we often, I speak for myself here, in education, I often haven't gone back and really traced the origins, to use the phrase that John used, trace the origins of these ideas. And I think it brings things into much clearer perspective when we see where ideas come from. 
Yeah. And I, I mean, I do have a background as a historian, among other things. And that was one of the reasons I wanted to write the book was to figure out where this all came from. And I, I discovered there wasn't, you know, there weren't secondary sources tracing this evolution of, you know, our approach to reading comprehension instruction. And I really had to be kind of a detective, a historical detective and, and put these things together for myself. And, you know, I hope I put them together in the right way. You know, I, I also saw John Gustafson's blog post and I welcome more people looking at how this came about. And maybe there's more nuance here, even beyond what I was able to find. But it was a fascinating experience to piece these things together. I mean, I'd be in the library and just reading one thing after another and going online and finding these articles and, and figuring out, seeing, oh, this person pops up again here and apparently changed his mind here. You know, it was really fascinating. In a recent review of your book, Robert Pondicio wrote the following, the knowledge gap cannot be viewed as a wake-up call for American education. The alarm has been ringing for more than three decades. We have hit the snooze bar and rolled over, and that's, well, alarming. So to stay in the space of talking about history, what he's referring to is E.D. Hirsch's 1987 book, Cultural Literacy, which you write about a lot in your book. So before we jump into that too much, could you just introduce us to this character of E.D. Hirsch and place him in historical context for us? So Hirsch wanted to figure out principles of good writing. And he went to a community college in Virginia and gave students two versions of essentially the same passage about the Civil War, one that was well-written and one that was poorly written, uh, according to these principles he had developed. And to his surprise, it made no difference whether students had gotten the well-written version or the poorly written one. And what that meant to him was students did not have enough background knowledge to understand the passage. It was a passage about the surrender of, of Robert E. Lee to U.S. Grant, to Ulysses Grant at the end of the Civil War. And he realized that these students just didn't know about that major event in U.S. history. So that set him on this path in the, in the 80s of writing about what was even then a skills-focused approach to reading comprehension. It was not nearly, you know, now it's on steroids. Then it was, it existed, but it was really less of a problem. Even so, it had limited what these lower-income students, these minority students, knew about their country's history. So he wrote a book called Cultural Literacy, which became a bestseller. But what it really became known for was a list that he appended to the end of the book of 5,000 words and phrases that every American should know. And, you know, Hirsch himself admits that most people really didn't read the book. They read that it became a party game. People would quiz each other. There were pirated copies of just the list circulating. And people looked at that list, and it was a Eurocentric list. There were a lot of Western concepts on that list. And they concluded that Hirsch had sat back in his armchair in his tweed jacket with his pipe because he was an academic and he was an older white male and had decided what is worth knowing? What should people know? And so they depicted him as this arch conservative. In fact, Hirsch described himself as uh, practically a socialist. He is not a, a conservative. And the way he came up with this list was not just picking things that, that he thought were important. He and some colleagues interviewed newspaper editors and trial lawyers and asked them, you know, when you're editing an article or you're making an argument to a jury, 
what is the knowledge that you assume listeners will know? And or readers. And he says they came up with a, you know, there was a lot of overlap in the answers they got. And that's how they came up with this list. But it really, you know, unfortunately sort of set back the cause of knowledge, I would say, because it became this argument became identified with a conservative political and cultural agenda. And it didn't help that Hirsch was embraced by Republicans and conservatives who were then in power and, you know, he became very closely identified with them in the public mind. So it was an unfortunate misunderstanding for Hirsch and for the cause of knowledge and for many school children and, and uh, now adults who were deprived of access to knowledge. Fair enough. Um, but I think what this episode really does highlight is a really key thing, which is that you know, if we have accepted the the main argument that's been made today, which is that knowledge is really the foundation and the achievement gap is founded or based upon the, the knowledge gap and things like that, this naturally leads to another question of, well, whose knowledge? Whose knowledge are we dealing with, right? And we can see through your book and through the, this historical precedent that when someone does kind of come up with a list like this, like Hearst did, it just is naturally kind of open to criticism because obviously no one everyone's not going to agree. And so, in your book, you kind of detail many different iterations and many different attempts throughout history to kind of construct a knowledge-rich curriculum, and particularly you talk about one by Charlotte Crabtree and Gary Nash and how that was kind of beaten down. So, I was wondering, in terms of this challenge of trying to come to an agreement about whose knowledge or what kind of knowledge or really nutting it down to the nuts and bolts of the dot points of knowledge that we want our students to have, from your study of history, what have you learned about what is needed in order to reach a consensus from multiple stakeholders as to what is to be included in such a knowledge-rich curriculum, or is it an impossible dream? Well, I think in this country, we're not going to be getting a national curriculum. Um, I think nobody's even going to try that, given what's happened in the past. But And the federal government is limited here in in its power to control curriculum. It's very much traditionally a a local matter. But there's a lot that states can do and that school districts can do. And and I think to some extent, this is a question I frequently get, you know, what knowledge and who decides. Mm. But I would argue that to some extent, it's kind of a red herring. I mean, we already decide this at the high school level. There's a lot of content, as you mentioned, at the high school level We've been able to agree on that. You know, we haven't agreed on what should happen at lower levels, but if we want kids to be able to absorb the knowledge we're prescribing at the high school level, we need to start equipping them for that earlier. You know, it's self-defeating to keep that knowledge from them earlier on. And, you know, even with the national history standards, which, you know, there were also misunderstandings involved in that and kind of became a media circus. But the criticism was not really focused on the elementary level national history standards, which, you know, apparently people thought did a pretty fair job of setting out what history kids should be exposed to. The objection, at least in this country, and I think this is true in some other English-speaking countries, is not so much that there are political problems or we can't agree on what young children should learn, but that it is inappropriate to even try to teach history to young children because they're not developmentally ready to grasp such abstract concepts or things that don't relate to their own experience. And 
that is an argument for which there is really no evidence. And I've certainly seen evidence to the contrary. I've been in classrooms where kids get fascinated by historical topics that have nothing to do with their lives. You can present almost any topic to kids in it in an engaging way through telling stories. History really is essentially a series of stories and kids love stories. Mm -hmm. So I think that's been more of a problem. You know, there are now content-focused elementary literacy curricula that are being adopted. It's still a small, relatively small proportion of schools and districts, but it's happening more and more. And I am really not aware of political battles that have erupted as a result. There may be an objection here or there from a parent who doesn't like a particular, it's usually a novel that touches on a theme like divorce, but those novels are already being used in schools. It's not about a content-focused curriculum. How does the Common Core shape up? Is that pretty pretty knowledge-focused? Well, that is a complicated question. And, of course, the Common Core, there's a, a lot of confusion about what the Common Core is. It is not a curriculum. And a lot of people in this country assume it is. But the literacy standards do not specify any particular texts or topics, aside from a few foundational U.S. historical documents at the high school level. If you look at the standards themselves, they appear to be just a list of skills. Now, there is language in the supplemental materials to the Common Core that the authors of the literacy standards put in there saying, essentially, if you want kids to be able to meet these standards, you need to build their knowledge through a coherent, content-focused curriculum beginning in the elementary years. Unfortunately, that language, most people are not aware that it's there, and most educators are not aware that it's there. And they've just looked at those apparent skills that are listed in the standards that may be a little different from the skills they're used to. They, they have things like students will be able to connect a claim to evidence and text. Students will be able to engage in close reading of complex text. Now, these are things that you can't do unless you have the background knowledge to understand a text, but they, teachers, educators, have developed new skills, common core skills, nonfiction skills, like identifying captions or glossaries that are supposed to equip students to read complex nonfiction as the common core requires. And the problem with that marriage of complex nonfiction text and skills is that it is even a worse situation than existed when kids were getting a steady diet of simple fiction. Because if you're reading nonfiction, if you're reading complex text, that actually does require more background knowledge and vocabulary to understand it than simple fiction. Okay. So the message I'm getting is we're probably not going to be able to get a national curriculum. The US isn't on this topic. The Common Core doesn't quite cut it in terms of specifying the knowledge. So I guess what that means is it kind of comes down to states like Louisiana, who you mentioned earlier, and it also comes down to schools and individual teachers to kind of really drive this. There's a question from Twitter from Maureen Ginsberg on this topic. She says, has Natalie observed any patterns in schools, districts, or other organizations that do a 180 from a strategies focus to the content focus approach? And what or who precipitated the change? So what was common around districts, schools, individuals who actually managed to make this switch to a knowledge focus? 
Well, actually, it's a good segue from the last question, because really, the Common Core in some places has sparked that shift. In some places, people did read that language in the supplemental materials. They did come to understand that if you want to implement these standards well, you actually do need to start focusing on content and to have a coherent curriculum. And so I think that the first development that was necessary was the development of Actually, there are now several content-focused elementary literacy curricula. It used to be, maybe five, six years ago, you could only get skills-focused elementary literacy curricula. So there was no off-the-shelf curriculum you could use. I mean, theoretically, schools were teaching social studies and science, but they were not doing that much of that. And social studies could be very, very superficial, as could science. So you do have things like core knowledge language arts, which was the first of those content-focused curricula, which was developed by E.D. Hirsch's Core Knowledge Foundation. And now there are several others. There's one called Wit and Wisdom. There's one called EL Education. Each of them takes a somewhat different approach and covers a somewhat different body of knowledge, but they all focus on topics rather than on skills. And they all involve teachers reading aloud to students from texts that students are not yet able to access through their own reading. So a district or a network of schools, the first step would be to adopt such a curriculum. And in Louisiana, at the state level, uh, they haven't required schools to adopt that curriculum, but they have encouraged schools to adopt not just the state's own content-focused curriculum, but others that meet a certain bar of focusing on content building knowledge. But that's really just the first step because educators, teachers, This is very different from what they're used to, certainly at the elementary level, is to focus on topics and and complex texts rather than skills and strategies and leveled reading. So it's very important for, in most cases, there are some teachers who will figure it out on their own, but many teachers are going to need some help and guidance, professional development, as we call it, but not just, you know, a quickie seminar or or workshop, really continuing professional development that is grounded in specific content. You know, we've kind of done the same thing with professional development for teachers that we've done with elementary literacy education and that we've been trying to teach skills divorced from content. So in the past, you might have had a professional development session for teachers on how how to foster critical thinking generally. But what teachers really need is, okay, you're teaching Greek myths or whatever. How are you going to get students to think critically about the myth of Achilles or whatever, this specific content that you're teaching? So teachers also, they need time to adjust. They need support. They need opportunities to collaborate with their their colleagues. All of those things are really important. And I think another thing, if possible, that's really important in, in bringing teachers along, and teachers do need to understand why this shift makes sense, why it's important, because historically, teachers have been able to just close the classroom door and do whatever does make sense to them. So if the new approach doesn't make sense, it's not going to take hold. But what can help with that is to find a school that is further along on the road, that is in year two or three of implementing a content-focused curriculum, doing a good job of it, And if teachers visit, and I've seen this happen, if teachers visit a school like that when they're skeptical or on the fence and see 
the teachers really like this new approach and the students really love it and the students are really learning stuff, that is tremendously powerful. And it is probably more powerful than saying, you know, this is really based in science and evidence because they've heard that a lot, not always absolutely accurate. And so they've come to be skeptical even of something like this is based in evidence, in scientific evidence. It's really better if they can see it with their own eyes. Mm. So there's lots of factors there. You talked about taking some of the knowledge-based resources that are out there and freely available. Talked about kind of PD. You talked about giving teachers time to really do things over an extended period of time and, and also seeing for themselves what this can look like in the classroom. So relating to that, there was a question from Reed Smith on Twitter. That is, and I know that Reed's school actually uses some of the core knowledge foundations resources here in Australia, but, but he asks... Given that a curriculum like the core knowledge curriculum does not exist for countries like Australia, how would you recommend non-US schools determine the breadth and depth of knowledge to teach students? Well, I know that in England, they've essentially created a version of core knowledge for English students that, you know, instead of focusing so much on United States history, focuses on English history and culture. So that's one possibility. But it doesn't have to be I mean, personally, I really like Cornelish because I'm a historian and it does more with history than some of these other content-focused curricula do. But, you know, I think there's no one body of knowledge in any country that, you know, is going to be the body of knowledge. So I think, you know, different countries, different cultures just need to determine for themselves what topics they want to ensure that all students cover at a minimum. And I think one way to look at that. It's, it's kind of like what Don Hirsch, Edie Hirsch did. You know, ask, well, what, what is a student going to need to know to read and understand a newspaper or a news report or to understand issues in an election with enough depth to be able to cast a meaningful vote? What are the things that we want students when they graduate to have stored in their long-term memory that will enable democracy to function, enable them to leave rich, productive lives. And it will vary to some extent, depending on the country. But, you know, I mean, I think we could all agree that certainly in the United States, kids need to know the difference between a a city and a state. They need to be able to find the United States on a map of the world, which many high school students can't do. They need to be able to find the city or a place where they live on a map of the United States. I mean, those are pretty basic things. And we're not even doing that at this point. So I think there's a lot we can agree on that needs to be communicated and transmitted. Yeah, fair enough. I guess one approach I was thinking about was just kind of brainstorming this question from Ray was maybe going onto the core knowledge resources, mm-hmm. core knowledge foundation resources, downloading them, having a look at them and anything that's specifically US, maybe matching it up with some kind of related idea that's yeah. from your country and kind of doing a bit of a thinking. That would probably be like a low low barrier kind of way to approach it in the interim for teachers who are pressed for time or something like that? Yeah. I mean, one thing about the Cornellis curriculum that distinguishes it from the others that are out there is that it has read-alouds stories, certainly at the lower grade levels for teachers read-aloud, that are created specifically for the curriculum. So other curricula rely on commercially available books, which has become more popular in this country. So if you wanted to substitute something in Australian history, you know, you might need to write it or maybe you could find 
a good book out there that would cover the information you'd want to cover. But I would say, I mean, writing curriculum is a very complicated thing to do. And most teachers haven't been trained to do it. And it really, you know, I think it works best when there's an overarching concept, you know, concepts and vocabulary get repeated through through the school year and then from one grade level to the next. That's hard for individual teachers to engineer. Ideally, you'll find a ready-made curriculum out there that meets your needs that a school or district or whatever will. And then the teacher's job will be not to create curriculum, but to, once they understand the theory behind it and how it's put together and why, to tweak it, adapt it, make it their own, adapt it to their students' individual needs. Mm. Do you know the name of the group in the UK? Because I know a lot of UK teachers listen. What's the name of the group in the UK who, who has already developed some of these resources? You know, I, I don't know. You mean the, core, the, the version of core knowledge? Yeah. I'm not sure that it's a group. You know, there's, there is a national curriculum in the UK or in England. England has a different education system from Scotland. And, but I actually don't, I don't know whether it is. I know that Michael Gove, who was the education minister when they introduced this new national curriculum, was a big fan of E.D. Hirsch's. And it may well be that the English national curriculum is what is based on the core knowledge sequence. Mm-hmm. I, I haven't looked at it myself, so I'm really not sure. All right. If we track down some links, we'll put them in the show notes for uh, English teachers to check out. Great. Do you, are you aware of any initiatives in any other countries that are similar? Well, there's this organization, Research Ed, that has conferences based in the UK, but it has conferences all over the world. And they are designed to bring cognitive scientists together with teachers, with practitioners. And so there's a lot of interest. I know they do it in Australia Mm -hmm. and some even some non-English speaking countries. I don't yet know much about this. I'm planning to look into what has happened in Portugal, which was not a teacher-led movement so much, but um, I, I gather that Portugal has really turned its education system around to a large extent by introducing a much more content-focused, coherent curriculum. So my weekend reading is going to include uh, something about that, and I hope to be able to maybe write something about it down the road. But at this point, I don't really know enough about it to say much about it. Wow, that sounds really interesting. We'll, We'll stay tuned for that for sure. Now, even if teachers do find this knowledge rich curricula, there are still many barriers that they may face. And John, who is, I guess, now soon becoming the second star of this podcast, John Gustafson, <laughs> um, asked another question on Twitter, which many people said they'd like to be asked here. So John asks, for the last decade, the idea of, quote, data-driven instruction has used English language arts standards, emphasizing skills and strategies as the driver of professional learning community meetings and interventions. How can we begin to change the focus from a fragmented view to a more content-focused view, given these power dynamics. So I guess he's come back to the idea that, you know, even if we're teaching kind of core knowledge in a classroom, we're still being assessed on skills. So how does an individual teacher or a school or a district address that? Well, this is one reason you need not just individual teachers to understand why this skills and strategies approach doesn't make sense. You also need principals, you need administrators, you need the people who are requiring these assessments. And of course, you know, this, these tests, when we talk about testing, it's not just the big end of the year test. It's these benchmark assessments and these periodic 
reading comprehension assessments that mimic those end of the year tests and give you data just in the form of, well, they, you know, this was a question on finding the main idea, or this was a question on could they identify a caption and they all chose the subtitle or whatever. And so it's very hard for teachers to ignore those assessments if that's how their performance is being judged and that's how their students' achievement is being measured. So, I mean, my only advice there is to try to ignore those as much as possible. I think what we need are assessments that are, you know, not just trying to test comprehension skills, but are testing actual comprehension of content and kids' ability to not only understand, but but think about what they've actually learned. But it, we've gotten so far away from that idea, you know, and you can do that through sentence-level writing activities. That's a quick and powerful way to both test comprehension, test, you know, whether kids can analyze their information and really develop those abilities to analyze and make connections. But I, I remember years ago when I was on the board of a, of a charter school here, and I was really trying to nudge them. This is before I started writing the book, but I had become aware of this problem. And I was I realized, oh my God, the school I, where I am on the board is part of the problem. And so every meeting I would, I mean, they must have gotten sick of hearing this. They saw me coming and they thought, oh no, content. Um, but I was trying to nudge them in the direction of teaching content. And they tried, although I witnessed a couple of, you know, it's not easy to just to do this. I mean, I, I witnessed, for example, a second grade class where the teacher was leading the kids through a pretty difficult reading about slavery. And, you know, it's really about the difference between the North and the South and the economic effects of slavery. And after 20 minutes or so of this, he discovered the kids didn't know what slavery meant. So, you know, you, you have to make sure that you're doing this in a way that really meets kids where they are. But I remember specifically to this point about testing and, and how that's affected, you know, this testing regime has affected how we think about assessment generally. An administrator at the school was telling me proudly that they were teaching, I don't know, third graders, let's say, about overfishing of the seas and the problem of overfishing and that this was a content-focused unit. And I said, well, that's great. Are you going to test them on their understanding of this? And she said, well, we thought we could find a reading passage that covered some of the same concepts and give them the reading passage and test them on that. I said, well, why don't you just ask him about overfishing? And she looked at me like this had never occurred to her. Mm. So this is so far from where we are in our assumptions about how we measure students' academic progress. It's going to take a while before this higher structure gets changed. And it, it may be messy in the interim. And it, it, well, what to say to an individual teacher beyond ignore the data-driven assessments, I would say also, you know, try speaking to your supervisors and, and the policymakers, you know, and, and explain to them why, you know, as one teacher said to me at a, a charter school that had switched from skills focused to data focused, they used to pour over this data. And I've seen this. I say, oh no, why did that, why did they choose B instead of C, they must not have understood, you know, main idea. We need to teach main idea again. And she said, now she realized that wasn't the problem. They just didn't understand the passage. Classic, classic. <laughs> so, I mean, really the, the core of your answer to, or part of the core of your answer to John's question there of, of 
pushing back against this, apart from, you know, you know, try to ignore them when we can't make larger scale changes was about we need to actually influence the people who are making the decisions around how teachers are being assessed and how students are being assessed. And there was one example in your book of a prominent person, Joel Klein, who was, what was his role in New York? He was the chancellor of the city school system. Chancellor so of the, was the, the head of the city school system. Yeah. So before we refer to that, just to remind listeners, we talked about his announcement in 2003 when he introduced the Lucy Culkin's curriculum. But there was actually. Which didn't yet exist. Yes. Which didn't yet exist, exactly. <laughs> but there was actually a really interesting narrative in your book about an errant email that somehow ended up in Joel's inbox and then the process that he went through to change his mind and what he's now doing or what he was recently doing in New York in terms of curricula. So please share that with us. Sure. Well, I mean, before the email arrived, which I'll get to in a minute, Joel had, and I'm going to call him Joel because I actually do know him personally, he was beginning to have doubts about this curriculum that he had sort of created by fiat um, that he had ordered into existence. Because for one thing, test scores, they were rising at the fourth grade level, and I'm talking about a national reading test, but there was no progress at the eighth grade level. And he also was visiting classrooms, which I would recommend to any high-level education official. Uh, I'm not sure how much that happens. And he would find himself in classrooms where the, the discussion was not really on about the text. It was on students' personal experiences, which is a very standard sort of balanced literacy approach. You have, you may explain, especially if you think the kids might not understand the text, you kind of explain the whole thing ahead of time. Or the other thing is to ask kids to relate whatever the topic is to their own experience. So he recounts in a book he wrote being in, I don't know whether, I think it was an eighth grade classroom. And the topic was supposedly slavery in the civil war, but the teacher said, and what was the cause of slavery? Or what was the cause of the Civil War? Slavery. And what was the cause of slavery? Racism. And then she asked, have any of you ever personally experienced racism? And then the rest of the class discussion was on students' personal experiences of racism. And, and Joel thought, you know, they should be learning about the Civil War, shouldn't they? So what happened was he, he said something publicly about encouraging the development of curriculum that would be focused more on content. And just some- quickly, what's what's the kind of timeline here? So his initial announcement was 2003. When was he visiting these classrooms? When's he making this new announcement? Has he been in the same role that whole time? Yeah, he's been in the same role that whole time. I would say this was about 2007, 2008. I can't remember exactly. And I, I don't think it was like a big public announcement. It was just there was an article in the newspaper, in the New York Times, I believe, And I'm not even sure that this is what sparked this errant email, but this is my best speculation, that reported on um, new curricula being developed to be recommended by the New York City Department of Education, and one of them would be focusing more on content than on skills. And I think this may have been a result of Joel's disillusionment with the Lucy Coffin's approach. But the head of the Cornellage Foundation, the executive director of the Cornellage Foundation down in Virginia, happened to see this article and sent E.D. Hirsch, the founder of the, the Cornellage Foundation, an email saying, look who's interested in building knowledge or something to that effect. And Joel says that somehow he was inadvertently copied on this email, which was clearly not meant for him. The people at the Cornellage Foundation don't actually remember that detail, but Joel does. And he says, 
he decided to respond. And he said, not only am I interested, I really want to learn more about it. And so he brought E.D. Hirsch and the, Linda Bevilacqua, who was the executive director of the foundation, to New York to talk about what could be done to encourage a more content-focused approach. And what they came up with was a pilot study in New York City schools. They would take 10 schools. They, they, they raised money for the foundation to develop a, a content-focused curriculum, which they at that point did not have for, I believe it was just kindergarten through second grade. And they had 10 schools use that curriculum, and then they took 10 demographically similar schools doing whatever they were doing, which was some version of balanced literacy. And at the end of three years, so these kids went from kindergarten to through second grade in these two different approaches, they tested the kids' reading comprehension and also their substantive knowledge of things like history and science. And the core knowledge schools did better on every measure. So, you know, that was just a preliminary study, but it seemed to indicate that that content-focused curriculum was going to do a better job of educating these kids. Unfortunately, by that time, Joel Klein was no longer the chancellor of the New York City schools. Okay. Is that study published anywhere that readers can check out? I think you can find some information about it on the website of the Core Knowledge Foundation. I don't know that it's published anywhere else. Okay. What do you think it was about Joel Klein or the relationships he had or the, or the experiences he had that enabled him to kind of come about face in terms of this issue? Because I'm sure a lot of politicians, you know, drive certain initiatives within their jurisdiction, but then have opportunities to kind of reflect upon them, but then never do, right? So do you think it's something about Joel or the context or the relationships? Or what is it that helped him have this change of heart? Well, you know, it's, it's hard to say about politicians that having just listened to the Democratic debates in the U.S. presidential contest last night, and, and nobody is talking about this issue at really at, at the, the national level or the local level in terms of politicians yet. I, I certainly hope that will happen at some point. But even at the level of, that, that Joel was at, which is, you're not just a politician, he was not a politician. I mean, he was installed by the mayor, but he never ran for any office. You know, I think what tripped him up and what ultimately may have saved him, if I can use that value-laden language, is that he, he was an education outsider. It's not to say that all education outsiders are going to figure out what the problem is, because we've had many who have not. But he had not been in, indoctrinated, should I say, or he had not been inculcated with this idea that it is a bad thing to stand up in front of a classroom of students and actually explain stuff to them. As with me, it seemed like that would be the sensible thing to do if you actually want them to acquire information and knowledge. I think when he started out, he he didn't he felt he didn't know enough about education to make a decision about what kind of curriculum would make sense. He by his own admission. But after a few years and after he, you know, felt a little more comfortable and, and actually saw what was going on in classrooms, he was able to say, wait a minute, this doesn't make sense. I mean, that didn't mean he could really at one fell swoop change things because, mm. as he says, he was surrounded by people, by education, you know, lifelong educators who were very much committed to this skills and strategies approach. Um, but I would say, you know, I mean, it's to his credit that he went as far as he did because 
you know, even education outsiders, education reformers and policymakers, they really haven't looked at what's going on inside classrooms. And Joel did. Good advice. Feet on the ground. Yeah. Now, maybe we jump into some closing questions, Natalie, if that works for you. Absolutely. Sure. Cool. I mean, you were just talking about outsiders coming into education and that not all of them can kind of get to the heart of the problem and that there's many kind of challenges along the way. So I thought I'd give you the opportunity to answer the question, you know, if you could go back in time and give some advice to yourself at the point at which you first came into education and working on this topic, what advice would you would you give? Well, I think I would have connected with this. There is a group of people who have understood this issue for a while, and I think that was the group of people that Robert Pondicio was referring to in his review, who have known about this issue at least since 1987 when E.D. Hirsch published Cultural Literacy. I did eventually connect with that group of people, but they, they were hard to find because I discovered they were basically just talking to each other. And I wish I'd known about them. I could say I also wish I'd read E.D. Hirsch and I'd read Dan Willingham. You know, without knowing what was actually going on inside schools, knowing the cognitive science or, you know, what, what E.D. Hirsch was writing about, which was a little bit abstract, I'm not sure I would have understood that that's not what's going on in most elementary schools. So, you know, this is really why I wrote the book. This is the book I would have liked to have read when I started getting involved in education. I would have uh, saved myself um, a lot of time. Fair enough. <laughs> but it so, didn't exist. So, so if you went back in time, you'd probably take a copy of your book with you. Um. <laughs> yeah, if I could. <laughs> Good idea. You seem pretty hooked into kind of the the happenings in education. I was wondering, what's your information diet like? Whose work do you follow? Who do you follow on Twitter? You know, what journals or or, or do you read the Hetchinger Report? Or tell us about your information diet. Yeah, I mean, I I read, I skim at least a whole bunch of different digests and things that I get, and for the most part, I can skim them pretty quickly because they don't have anything that relates to this issue. And I did just write something for a, a newsletter called The Grade, which focuses on education journalism in the United States about, you know, my theories about why education journalists have over overlooked this mm. issue to a large extent and how they can start covering it better. So there isn't a whole lot out there that that I read that that really focuses on this issue. But there are is the Heckinger Report, which you mentioned. There's a, a writer named Jill Barche who writes about uh, education research and often has. I was just reading something she wrote today that I'm hoping to use and something I'm planning to write. Writes very well about developments in education research and often they do relate in some way to this topic or to the connection or lack of connection between cognitive science and classroom practice in general. There's also, you know, the Research Ed magazine, which uh, doesn't come out that frequently, but usually has a lot of stuff that I'm interested in reading. That's free as well. Yeah, amazingly. Mm. <laughs> Even post it to your topics. house and you don't have to pay anything. It's crazy. It is amazing. I would say that there's also, for people who just want to know more about cognitive science, I would recommend a website called The Learning Scientists. And that's run by a group of cognitive scientists, and, and they explain in very accessible terms various 
you know, the evidence from cognitive science and these things like the retrieval practice and uh, other phenomena that cognitive scientists have documented that relate to how people learn. Also, Dan Willingham, you know, he has a website. You can subscribe to updates. And, and he also writes very accessibly and, and focuses particularly to a large extent, not exclusively on reading comprehension and problems with how we teach reading comprehension. On the phonics side, if people are interested in the problems with the way we teach foundational skills, Emily Hanford is a journalist who's done some wonderful radio documentaries on problems with phonics instruction. And I would also say just for people who are maybe somewhat new to this issue or, or want to go into more depth, there's a website called the Knowledge Matters Campaign, knowledgematterscampaign.org. And it has collected a lot of resources having to do with various aspects of this issue of the problems with skills and strategies, comprehension instruction, and the reasons we need to build knowledge. And also, you know, I was talking about how important it is for teachers to see what this looks like in action. There's something called the Knowledge Matters School Tour, which is on that website, which is, I believe it's six or seven different schools in different parts of the country that people from the Knowledge Matters campaign went to. They were using different, one or another of these different knowledge building curricula. And so they are descriptions of what those curricula look like in action. Fantastic. Now, you mentioned Emily Hanford's work today, and that's, I mean, there was a whole heap in your book about literacy instruction more broadly. That's something that I've kind of avoided in today's <laughs> interview because we had to cut some stuff out. But our main reason why I've avoided that is because Emily Hanford's already done such a good job of covering that. So I really would implore listeners, I'll put the links in the show notes to listen to Emily Hanford's two radio documentaries on this topic, which are absolutely fantastic. And I just they felt are. like I, there was no way we would, would do as good a job in the discussion today as yeah. she's done. So really, <laughs> listeners have, have, have got to get onto that if you haven't already. Also, you mentioned an article that you wrote recently about why journalists may have missed this topic. Is that a freely available article? Yeah, it's on a website. There's an organization called Phi Delta Kappen oh, yeah, yeah. dot org, and it's a sort of subdivision of that organization, which is an education-focused organization called The Grade. And you know, I've had a little trouble googling and finding it, so I'm not sure. We'll what put a to... link to it. Yeah, it's uh, you know, I I was very uh, glad to have the opportunity. It's, it's basically directed at education journalists, and I was really glad to have the opportunity to try to speak directly to that very important constituency. And I don't blame them for not having covered it. And one of the reasons, as I say, that they haven't covered it is that journalists tend to cover what people are talking about. And nobody really has been talking about this except for that small group that it wasn't getting much attention. So again, I hope my book can do something to change that situation. Definitely. What's next for Natalie Wexler? What are you currently excited about? Well, uh, um, you know, I didn't write this book because I wanted to write a book and I was sort of casting about for a topic. I, I wrote this book because I stumbled across a topic that desperately needed a book written about it and nobody else was doing it. And I've only become more convinced doing the research and writing for this book of the importance of this topic and, and the, the crying, urgent need for it to come to public attention. So I'm not planning on moving on from this topic. And I I don't have any specific plans other than maybe going into more classrooms 
because I wasn't, you know, I went into a bunch of classrooms, but there are a lot more that I haven't been into. And, I, and there are a number of these curricula that I haven't yet seen in action. And I would really like to go to some of the places that have adopted them and, and look and see what that's like. And speaking of those curricula, could you just quickly give us a name of some of the organizations people should be looking at if they want to find these resources? Sure. Well, there is an organization called edreports.org. I mean, so it's a website that has rated also math, but I'm specifically focusing on elementary literacy curricula. And so they rate them in part for how well they build knowledge. So you can go there and see which ones have gotten green as opposed to yellow or red ratings for knowledge building. But there's a, an organization called Great Minds that has developed a curriculum called Wit and Wisdom which you can sample on their website. Some of these curricula are actually open educational resources, so that means they're freely available online. Um, that's true of core knowledge language arts. You can you can buy it through a publisher called Amplify, and you don't have to print out everything. But if you want to just see what it's like, you can just go to the Core Knowledge Foundation website, and it's all there. Also, Bookworms is the curriculum that you can look at online. EL Education is also freely available online, and the Louisiana Guidebooks, which is the curriculum, ELA curriculum created by the state of Louisiana. Also, you can take a look at that online. Fantastic. And um, final question, Natalie, any last calls to action for listeners, things you'd love them to go away today and do? Well, I'd say that if you're in a position, if you're a policymaker or an administrator and you're in a position to, say, switch from a skills-focused curriculum to a knowledge-focused one, I mean, that is something I would urge you to look into doing. If you're a teacher or a parent, you know, first of all, if you're a parent, look into what curriculum your kid's school is actually using. I think parents, I know this was true when my kids were young, they tend to trust the schools to know what to do. But, you know, those Experts may be working on incomplete or inaccurate information. So I'd say if you're a parent, the first thing to do is ascertain what the curriculum is, especially if it's an elementary school. And if it is a skills-focused comprehension approach, I would say try to band together with some other parents, um, educate other parents about the problem and approach the administration of the school and, and try to educate them if there's resistance. Teachers can try to do the same thing. And I think joining with other teachers, there's a lot of activity, you know, on Twitter among teachers who are coming to this realization about problems with the way we've been doing literacy instruction. But the main thing is for anyone is to just start talking about this issue. I think at a minimum, we need to get into the public conversation and understand why what we've been trying hasn't been working. Natalie Wexler powerful messages and thanks so much for your time today. I guess it's it's really inspiring. You put it well there. You didn't set out to write a book and you, you look for a topic. You really have just followed your nose. You found a really important topic that, you know, from my own experience, I've definitely found teaching in a low SES school. These knowledge gaps are so important. Anytime we're trying to teach anything, we're always trying to relate it to previous things. And if students don't have that foundation, then it just... I mean, you can write a whole book on it, but also kind of from first principles, it seems kind of obvious that we need to know stuff in order to know further stuff. So it's surprising it's been ignored for so long. 
And I just really commend you on writing a fantastic book that traces the origins of these ideas, is really just engaging from go to woe, and, and that, you know, you, you're not drawing the line at the end of this book as well, but you're actually, you know, carrying on the torch and doing the work that needs to be done to continue to advance this cause. So thanks for your time t- today. Hopefully the podcast can, can bring your work to more ears and um, we look forward to following your work in future. Well, thank you so much. And thanks for inviting me. I really appreciated this opportunity to, to get the message out there. Thank you for joining us today for this episode of the ERRR podcast with Natalie Wexler. As always, you can find show notes with links to all the resources that were mentioned at ollilovell.com. And as mentioned during the intro, if you'd like to become a patron, just go to patreon.com forward slash ERR to sign up. Please share this episode with friends and colleagues if you've got something out of it. And if you've got any suggestions for future guests you'd like to hear on the ERRR podcast, I'd love to hear from you. Or if you've got any questions, comments, thoughts or reflections on this episode or any other ERRR episode, I always welcome contact from listeners via Twitter or email. Thanks for your time and listening today. Have a wonderful week. And until next time, keep learning. This podcast is part of the Australian Educators Online Network, aeon.net.au.